Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Look Ahead Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you guys had a terrific weekend and thanks so very much for joining us. It did, Vago, and uh, same to you and your family. I assume it was all well and productive. Uh, well productive uh, and uh, semi restful <laughs> as uh, as weekends are right. I mean, in the post can uh, pandemic world, Byron, uh, you and I are pretty much working twenty four seven, and so when you get a little bit of time off, uh, it is absolutely uh, terrific, and certainly had a chance to do that. Um, uh, you have been very busy, a uh, tremendous uh, number of notes, at least six notes of note <laughs> that I think we're going to touch on uh, since uh, the last time uh, we met. Uh, let's start with the Middle East. There is a perception that it wasn't really on the radar uh, for the administration, which I believe is inaccurate. The administration has been following in its predecessor's footsteps uh, in trying to negotiate a, a grand bargain whereby Saudi Arabia would recognize Israel in exchange for Jerusalem's acceptance of a two-state solution. That all evaporated on October 7, even though um, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, nor anybody else has um, you know, uh, stopped uh, the relationships uh, they had built with uh, Israel and have been somewhat measured uh, in their criticism. Uh, we've um, transitioned from light airstrikes on Iraqi and Saudi targets that uh, fired on U.S. troops in the region to a larger air campaign against the Houthis uh, and just days ago, heavier strikes on Iranian back militias uh, after three Americans were killed and 40 wounded. Normally, military activity can drive stock prices. Not so much. Why not this time well, around? I think in this case, Vago, look, these strikes are, you know, they're expansive, but in the grand scheme of things, are they really going to put a dent um, and change the vector of U.S. or regional defense spending? I think, you know, if this evolved or ignited into a wi wider regional war with Iran and, and or Hezbollah, where you did have major damage to Israeli infrastructure um, and, a, and a broader war that somehow, you know, emerged from all this. Yeah, I would expect obviously to see defense stocks move, but so far, you know, this all seems within the relative constraints that we've seen in really going back to the 1980s. I mean, the administration is not elected to conduct strikes against Iran. Um, I think Iran has <clears throat> attempted to distance itself a bit. They don't appear to want a wider war out of this either. Um, but I think at the end of the day, people are going to look at, um, yeah, we'll replace some of the munitions that are expended. Yes, there are operating costs <clears throat> that the department is going to incur that hopefully are covered by a supplemental uh, bill that Congress will pass to replenish uh, the, the magazines, the, the weapons that are used and <clears throat> pay for the incremental uh, costs of these operations. But you know, at the end of the day, is it something that's really going to move the needle for defense contractors in the United States? And the market verdict, at least, you know, looking at how the stocks performed last week was, no, it's not. And I suppose that the same, the same, you know, market assessment is <clears throat> these particular actions are still within that box of constraint where <clears throat> um, there's been an underlying conflict that's really been going on since 1979. It just flares up and, and calms down. But 
Um, we, we haven't yet crossed uh, over into a, a larger war that really is going to change defense spending in the Middle East, Europe, and the United States. Um, I, I want to go uh, to uh, the supplemental uh, next, uh, and uh, because you wrote about the supplemental and, and you wrote about the defense scorecard last week uh, as well in terms of improving uh, overall defense sentiment, the House has decided to advance the Israel supplemental, but not uh, on Ukraine. And unfortunately, there is uh, a lot of concern that that simply isn't going to advance because of, uh, you know, the excuses, the border, the reality is. Um, you know, the candidate who's running for president doesn't want Ukraine supported uh, is also uh, part of the dynamic going on here, or at least keep the border uh, bad uh, because uh, it, it would hurt uh, President Biden. Um, what's your sense on how the mechanics of this supplemental work? Because each of these supplemental elements are actually really good for U.S. industry, ultimately, right? I mean, well, 90% of the jobs are in the United States to produce systems. Right. But I think, you know, you guys talked a little bit about it on your Friday show. Um, and I, I think, sure, there's been progress on FY24 appropriations. But, um, you know, when you see Senator Grassley come out, you know, and say, well, we can't do a border deal because it might help Biden in an election year, I, I'm still very guarded on kind of the posture in Congress, um, you know, anything that the GOP might do that could conceivably help Biden get reelected <clears throat> is off the table. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and I also think there's an undercurrent of, um, you know, why are we spending all this money on Ukraine? Um, there are some people, I think, still in the fringes of Congress who, uh, you know, just they'd rather support Russia, um, quite bluntly. Um, and then, you know, there's a broader question about, gee, isn't this a lot of money when we could be spending this money in the United States? You know, why why is it? And yes, it goes to um, to defense contractors. But, you know, there are other conceivable spending needs um, that aren't just limited to defense. So I'm wary of it. Um, and I, I would agree. I think, sure, if the House tries to move another standalone bill, it'll die in the Senate. Um, and I, I just think people ought to still be cautious here about how the FY24 appropriations and the supplemental bills are going to come together. Congress tends to work right up to deadlines. And, right. you know, the, the line in the sand that it's got right now is April 30th <clears throat> when um, the automatic cuts kick in uh, if any of the 12 appropriations bills haven't been passed by Congress. Um, you know, you get budgets that are 99% of the FY23 level with all the things that the DOD has warned, you know, that kind of, once again, catastrophic, I think was a term <clears throat> from the Air Force used recently about the impact of these cuts. So could we get there? Yeah. Are we going to get there in the next week or two? I'm doubtful. Um, you know, again, I think you guys pointed out on the uh, on the Friday show, you know, the Senate's going to be on recess from February 12th to the 23rd. So there just isn't a lot of time on the calendar here. And um, again, it's kind of this partisan positioning that I, I, I hope it gets done, <clears throat> but I've got to, you know, kind of keep that front and center in my mind that it might not get done. And I suppose as much as the, um, uh, it may be too soon to tell, but, you know, there was a positive breakthrough for Ukraine last week with the EU approving the 50 billion euro package right. over the objections of Hungary, which I think finally realized uh, that if it 
continue to back, back this, you know, back, back blocking this, there could be negative uh, repercussions for its <clears throat> position in the EU. So, but I don't know, does that now kind of temper um, some members in Congress, you know, oh, well, the Europeans are picking up the burden. See, if we keep, if right. we don't provide aid, then then the Europeans will lift that all by themselves. And, I, and they, they can't do that. Um, it's, it's, it's also worth pointing out that that's economic aid, right? The overwhelming yeah. majority of that is economic aid, not military aid, which is absolutely, what we will get. Absolutely. Fighting. But, you know, are people going to make that distinction? No. So it kind of gets back to the broader America first, you know, European burden sharing. This is a European problem. We should be really focused on China. That's our basic threat. <clears throat> Let's let the Europeans handle Ukraine and Russia. Um, but again, you know, if if Europe has come through with that, does that then, is that another reason for people who object to um, a, a major, you know, 100 billion plus uh, security supplemental includes 60 billion or more for Ukraine? Um, where do you see defense sentiment going, right? You did your latest uh, defense scorecard that takes a look at outlays and projects out from that. What's what? Why do, why do you sense sort well, of improving yeah, sentiment? It, for it, may, it may just be, I'm not, per the discussion we've just had, Vago, I'm not ready to, to change my expectations for how this all plays out. But, you know, you start to see these paths that might emerge, you know, if the border security issues can be decoupled uh, completely from the Ukraine supplemental package, you know, maybe that has a better chance of getting through. Because if, if you know, the, the strategy was to just continue to link these, it, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't going to happen in the House. Um, and the appropriations, yeah, to Michael's point in the Friday show, you know, at least, at least got the 302B allocations <clears throat> that, set the spending levels for the 12 appropriations bills, which means that <clears throat> staff and members can now start working on what's going to be in each of those 12 bills. But, um, you know, and, and I'll say one other thing. I think this group, not all the stocks, um, obviously, but the larger names really didn't have a great earnings season. Uh, you know, you had the write-off again at, at Northrop Grumman on the B-21 program, um, some of the commercial companies did okay. You know, our companies where where commercial was a bigger factor, um, RTX, for example. Um, you know, but but the defense overhang, <clears throat> the concerns you know that I've written about or I've, in in my Monday note about operating margins and you know the kind of questions about where do these go. I mean, it's still <clears throat> it's still some uncertainty that's out there in these massive share buybacks at least that have been announced by Northrop and Lockheed Martin really haven't juiced the stocks that much. So, um, you know, they're still facing some headwinds, but, you know, the fact that they lag, the fact that maybe the consensus is more negative on this sector, you know, you always look for, could there be an inflection point where, yeah, maybe, maybe by April we get the budget done and there's a path to get a supplemental through and, and it kind of clears the decks for, um, for maybe better, earnings in 2025 26 and 27 that people now expect um that that's kind of what i'm looking for an inflection at and uh obviously that's the theme of uh today's uh note on operating margins uh as you said range bound or break lower uh for for uh the group yeah um, and, and what i really tried to do vago you know there are a lot of caveats um that you have to throw out when you look at historic data but i have operating margin data for Northrop or Northrop Grumman, 
um, and Lockheed or Lockheed Morton back to 1960. <clears throat> and, you know, maybe, maybe the, the tie-in I was trying to make in this note is there's also a chart that shows the core CPI numbers uh, and how they've obviously been, you know, spiking in the 1960s, you know, parts in the 1970s, early 80s, and then again, the spike we've just seen recently in 2021, 2022. <clears throat> um, so, you know, I didn't really answer it completely in the question that I posed. You know, my gut is they're probably still going to be range bound once you get through the other side of, of right. uh, absorbing these inflation pressures. Again, the big question is, <clears throat> is inflation starting to moderate? The data says it is, you know, but I'm not an economist. I don't have a prediction for what the CPI, core CPI could be in the United States in 2022 or 2023, but I, I in 2024, 2025. But I do think that um, <clears throat> the the data shows that when these companies start having these write-offs and charges on fixed price programs, it's usually a result of, um, you know, maybe some complacency in inflation and that gets baked into these contracts and don't have um, price adjustment clauses in them. And that's where some of the charges and write-offs can come from. So if inflation moderates and industry is a bit more disciplined, you know, ask Congress, ask the department for, those clauses and contracts, the problem should go away. And, and we're kind of back to what I think are, you know, fairly normal margins for the sector. Right. Um, and a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, Byron, uh, let me take you to Boeing, obviously one of the biggest, uh, I mean, one of the biggest companies to report last week, uh, HII reported as well, and Ron uh, Epstein discussed that uh, on uh, the business program yesterday. Um, Boeing is critical to the ecosystem. Um, they suspended guidance uh, on the uh, for, for the company overall because of the commercial challenges, uh, saying uh, the suspended guidance for 2024 uh, said they would focus on improving quality. They withdrew their request for a time-limited exemption uh, on the 737's, uh, uh, 737 MAX 7's engine de-icing system. Congress was expected to rescind that or was going to rescind that anyway. Uh, and we did discuss a little bit on the defense uh, space and security uh, side uh, of the business uh, as well. Uh, none of our Washington Roundtable were fully satisfied with what they heard uh, from uh, management. What were your takeaways? Because you more focused on uh, BDSNS. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, the, the simple takeaway, you know, there were a couple of questions. There have been more questions in the calls on operating margin performance and management reiterated that this goal to kind of get to, you know, what they believe are, are normal margins for that particular business segment, which are kind of high single digit numbers, um, you know, kind of in the 2025, 26 timeframe, it's really a runoff on the fixed price development programs and kind of working through <clears throat> some of the labor and material issues that they've had on aircraft and missile programs. The point that I tried to make in the note was, um, you know, they Boeing still, that particular business segment still has some interesting portfolio challenges ahead of it <clears throat> that um, much as maybe people are focusing on uh, the profitability of that segment, you know, the longer term revenue outlook still has a lot of variability in it. And um, their programs like, 
you know, the F-18, that production will end in, in 2025. <clears throat> F-15, um, you know, those deliveries might extend out <clears throat> if they don't win new international orders to 2028, 2029. <clears throat> P-8, um, you know, they got another year basically of production with a, uh, a decision by Canada to buy, I think it was 14 uh, P-8s and options for two right. more. So that takes it out another year. Um, I, I expect we'll hear more about the tanker plans <clears throat> that the Air Force has at the uh, Air Force Association conference. You and I are going to be attending in in Colorado next week. Um, but you know, KC forty six that production could end um, at the end of this decade, maybe early next decade. So <clears throat> they've got some big moving parts in their in their portfolio. The helicopter programs look pretty good between Chinook and Apache, and um, but but it's the other kind of combat aircraft and, and other aircraft programs, uh, surveillance and, and maritime patrol that I think, and then tanker that I think, you know, there, there's probably people need to think through that. Now, Boeing has options here, you know, they can bid, they are bidding for <clears throat> the collaborative combat aircraft program, um, you know, I, I assume they're in for NGAD and the FAXX uh, program, uh, you know, kind of these next generation aircraft programs for the Air Force and the Navy, you know, but um, will pass performance harm their bid prospects? You know, do they have the right. engineering capacity to do this? Um, <clears throat> what happens if CCA goes to Enduro, um, for example? You know, so I, I just think it's an interesting thing that people aren't really focusing on. I, obviously, commercial aerospace is going to be the real driver at that company. <clears throat> but um, people can't lose sight of this defense business as well, too, because it is, you know, still a, what, 23, 24 billion a year in sales and a pretty important part of the U.S. and defense industrial base and an important um, contributor to allied capacity. So um, I, I think, you know, hopefully maybe if Boeing gets on the other side of some of these commercial aerospace issues that's kind of plagued the company, they can start articulating, you know, what's the path, the long-term path for this particular business segment. Is there, or, you know, in, in private, um, some in the department have expressed concern about Boeing uh, on the defense side. I mean, just overall as an entity, right? I mean, it is one of the most important uh, contractors. Once upon a time, uh, early in my career, I remember that Boeing's engineering capacity was listed as the five strategic discriminators, along with nuclear weapons, nuclear propulsion, uh, and uh, space, uh, ultimately. Um, does the department have to talk more publicly about how concerned no, it is? No, I think they just have to do things. Um, <clears throat> you know, look, Boeing... It is a national strategic asset. And I think what people, they, they may lose sight of, and it's not just Boeing as a company, um, you know, in, in the defense market, but it's it's what the commercial aerospace um, parts of the company do for the defense industrial base. I think if you go down, you know, two or three layers into um, the supply network in this company, in this country, you know, you'll find a lot of the smaller companies, they're they're not just pure defense contractors. They rely on commercial aerospace as well, too. <clears throat> so Boeing, you know, is is a weaker global player <clears throat> in the 2030s. Um, that has defense implications. And you, right. you might 
make the weird analogy to the U.S. shipbuilding industry. I mean, somehow we seem to have a world-class Navy without a, a world-class commercial shipbuilding business. I worry about that, quite frankly. Um, you know, we've been able to do it <clears throat> for a couple of decades. Um, but, uh, you know, China is the largest merchant shipping builder in the world. <clears throat> and that latent capacity is really something that, uh, that matters a lot, I think, when you think through this, this strategic competition. So I think the same is true for commercial aerospace, you know, that right. having a healthy commercial aerospace sector in the United States, it doesn't necessarily have to be Boeing. It can be other companies. Um, the, the Air Force Jet Zero contract, I think, was really interesting right. as a way to possibly foster <clears throat> alternative um, pillars in the commercial aerospace industry in the United States. And, um, you know, if, if Boeing can't do it, then there there should be other ways to to support a, a vibrant commercial aerospace sector in the United States. Um, well, I mean, right uh, from a messaging standpoint, Boeing was not the recipient of that contract, right? Jet Zero was the prime and Northrop Grumman. Uh, is uh, uh, the the one that's going to most benefit from that two hundred thirty five million dollar contract, right? So, it it is um, you know it, it's it's interesting to project forward where we could be in twenty years and whether or not the commercial aircraft that we fly on no longer have a Boeing name on them, but maybe have a Northrop Grumman name uh, on them ultimately. Yeah, and this uh, this gets back into the broader. You know, there was a chart I did earlier in another report on Boeing. I mean, the losses they're experiencing are really unprecedented. Um, if you looked at the history of this company, you know, at least going back to 1960, um, I get it. You know, is this a, it, it's, I'll leave it to Ron and, and Rich to really, you know, kind of dive into this, but, but it's a cultural shift and it's not just this company, but, um, you know, you can't say it's just institutional ownership. Um, it's it's somewhat ironic that it's the institutional shareholdings of Boeing are about the same as Airbus. Right. Uh, they're basically 60, 65 percent each um, in terms of their shareholders or institutional investors. But it's how management has operated these companies. You know, have they just driven cash flow return on net assets? as the the gods that the altar of how they manage these companies at the expense of labor relations, you know, healthy supply networks, uh, product development. Um, I referenced it in the Monday note, but it, you and I know Mike Petters, uh, former uh, chairman CEO of Huntington Ingalls, and he always used to have this, you know, comment that Sure, I could earn I could earn higher margins at Huntington Ingalls, but they would be at the expense of the long term competitiveness and prowess of this um, major American shipbuilder. So there's a balance, and maybe Boeing, you know, overstepped that balance. Um, I'll leave that to the other analysts to figure that out. But um, right. you know, Michael said he he Huntington Ingalls has been around for a hundred years. He wanted to make sure that they're around or now HAI is around for another hundred years. And right. that kind of stewardship, I think is very important. Um, and hopefully Boeing is getting that message too. Uh, and, and part of the company's strategy under Chris Kastner uh, is 
to be able to expand into other parts uh, of the business that will then make it a better shipbuilder at the end of the day as well on data, machine learning, training, et cetera, Absolutely. Uh, to, to be able to control that virtuous cycle. And right, I mean, who would have imagined that the company's technical services and some of these other parts are now as large uh, as the Ingalls side of the business, uh, you know, in, in Pascagoula. So, yeah. um, you know, still shipbuilding is no less important, but at least gives the company uh, the, the resources to be able um, to continue investing in that side of the business for its Navy customer when, you know, the Navy customer occasionally does things like propose stretching out programs, which only make them more expensive, as we, we saw recently and heard from Chris about carriers. Um, let me uh, take you really quick. One thing to discuss before we get to the week ahead, talk to us a little bit um, about the data on arms exports uh, that you uh, yeah. took a look at. The U.S. is the world leader in the wake of Russia's war on Ukraine. We've had a surge of both new orders uh, as well as drawing down and transferring from existing inventory. What does the data tell us? Well, it's it's DISCA notifications, um, Defense Security Cooperation Agency notifications to Congress, and these are released by the State Department. I think State released the data for fiscal year 23 on January 29th. Um, it's interesting, Vago, but, you know, <clears throat> does it really tell you a lot about growth expectations in the sector? And, it, it you know, you have to treat the data... You know, if this is a record year for um, DISCA notifications, it doesn't mean that next year is going to be a record year for U.S. defense exports. It's going to take time to play out. And, you know, my caveats are um, some of these notifications don't always result into defense contracts. Um, you know, one of the case in points is a DISCA notification for export of Boeing F-18s to Brazil. That never happened. Uh, the other is, you know, these the dollar values can really cover the entire life of a program. So <clears throat> they may be big numbers, but they may be stretched out over 20 years. And um, I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying that from an analyst standpoint and kind of so, oh, well, if we had a, you know, you can't take, you know, the 2023 data compare it to 2022 and say, oh my God, there's going to be this giant surge in international defense sales in U.S. contractors. To the case I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the Canada P-8 um, sale. Yeah, it's good. Boeing gets another year of P-8 deliveries, but that's not growth from them. That's just kind of plugging a hole that would have emerged in um, in Boeing defense uh uh, space and security sales as P8 ended. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, will next year be a record? I kind of doubt it. Um, this current year, fiscal year 2024, <clears throat> you know, that data included a lot of the big um, sales that resulted from uh, really the change in European defense posture <clears throat> after Russia's invasion at scale of Ukraine. And uh, give us a sense on the week ahead, because it is an exceptionally busy week with a lot of big names, hopefully saying big things <laughs> over yeah. the course of this week. Walk us through, because uh, it's a pretty star-studded set of events. Well, Mar yeah. well Army Chief of Staff uh, General George is going to be speaking at the Association of the U.S. Army on February 6th. Um, the day before, Doug Bush, who is the Army Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, is speaking at CSIS on munitions production. Uh, Andrew Hunter of the Air Force is going to be speaking February 9th at Atlanta Council. That'll be a good curtain raiser for what's going to be talked about the following week at 
Air Force Association, um, RAND Corporation is going to be doing what looks like a pretty interesting discussion on uh, kind of the DOD's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process. Um, they actually did some support work for that, that group. And in Saudi Arabia, um, there is the World Defense Show that takes place. Um, that's actually starting started yesterday on February 4th. Um, so I'm not expecting a lot of that show. You know, what I'd really like to see or hear is, <clears throat> you know, what might be said about the Saudi participation on the global uh, combat aircraft program that UK, Japan, and Italy are working on. And, you know, is there anything new on the typhoon order now that the Germans have kind of dropped their opposition of that? That's That's been right. kind of a long-term issue for BAE systems. And is there any color about, <clears throat> you know, just what's going on in those markets in light of, of the tensions in the region. Um, but, you know, I'm not aware of any big blockbuster Saudi buys that are upcoming. I, I think the other key factor coming out of that show is, you know, Saudi Arabia has some pretty interesting aspirations to build out their own defense industry. What other initiatives, what other, what, what else could pop up at that show that adds incremental perspective to those plans? Byron, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope you have a great uh, week and look forward uh, to having you back on again next week and seeing you in Denver to do that. Thanks so much. Same to you, Vago. Safe travels.